Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Larry Miller. We're at Stangeland in Salem, February 18th, 2022. Uh, Larry, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, you're quite welcome. I figured it's about time. I've been (laughs) in this industry 43 years, or 45, depending on how you count. (laughs) About time to tell your story. Well, let's start with the easiest question of all then. Uh, Why wine? Uh, well, I just sort of fell into the uh, the loop there. I in the in the seventies, I uh, after a, almost a year um, trip around Europe by myself. I was twenty six. I came back to Salem, my hometown, born and raised here, by the way, and um, I uh, I started you know, having wine with spaghetti, you know, it was the cheap wine and it started somewhere else and, you know, I enjoyed uh, beer a little bit, you know, and I bought a grocery store in 73 and it was a little country store and I bought it with a, a friend that I grew up in the South Salem neighborhood with and we operated it for about five years. But during that time, uh, we, we had a, uh, a little wine selection there. The f- previous owners had never sold wine out of that store. And so we took one wall and I built pine wine shelving and stuff in there, you know. And so we started stocking a number of wines and we, we ended up um, meeting um, a guy named, uh, by the name of John Henney. He's probably come up in your fields. Uh, and he was the importer uh, and he was personal friends with the Rothschilds and stuff. So he kind of got us set up with wines that were not just mainstream bulk wines. and. We didn't make a lot of money in this endeavor, this store. It was just a mom and pop thing. We had gas pumps, frozen food lockers. We had a five bedroom house attached to the back of the <laughs> store. You know, we rented out a couple of rooms. And so uh, we didn't make much money at it, but you know, we, we lived and we had a good time and, and uh, became part of a community, which we hadn't, I mean, we grew up I don't know, five miles away in South Salem, but this was out in the country a little bit, you know. So during that time, uh, you know, we'd test out a bottle of wine, you know. <laughs> it's our wine, we drink it when we want, you know. So that's kind of how I got into tasting different wines and, and uh, you know, took, took a, a trip down to Napa one time and and met a woman there at the Mondavi there. It was a great teacher. She was from Eugene of all places. But she, uh, she opened my eyes a little bit about the process of making fine wine and barrel aging it and all of that. So, so that's kind of how I got 
interested in, uh, in that. And then uh, about 1974, uh, I, met, I had a chance meeting with David Lett from Irie Vineyards. Everybody knows who he is. And he kind of inspired me to, to go further in the, in the wine thing. And I, I was more uh, interested in the growing of the grapes than I was in making or selling wine, you know? And so that's, that's the angle I came at the industry, you know? And I provided a living with myself by being a contractor. After, after the store sold, uh, I became a contractor for 12 years, during which I uh, took care of the grapes. I guess I need to back up a little. I, I, I bought cuttings from David in 1975. I bought 3,000 cuttings, most of them Pinot Noir, but there was also Chardonnay. And we put them in my sister's garden east of Salem. <laughs> you know, uh, and rooted him. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, and at this time, I had told my mother about meeting this fellow, David Latt, and, and listening to what he said about ideal places to grow grapes in the, at this uh, latitude, mm -hmm. at 45 degrees. And that, according to him, the, <laughs> the southern exposure was was the uh, the most ideal exposure. So <clears throat> she said, my mother said, well, your father and I own a piece of property out in West Salem with a, a southern exposure on it, which I didn't know because they didn't tell me every <laughs> dealing they do, you know. We were pretty open with each other, you know, but uh, I said, well, let's go out and look at it. So we. We drove out here. We had to drive up the neighbor's driveway to get, you know, we walked along here and I go, wow, this looks perfect. You know, so uh, I asked her, can, can I grow grapes on it? No house, no water, no road, no power, bare land, you know? And so she says, well, yeah, I don't see why not, you know? And so that was the, the impetus to go ahead. So then in 75, the winter of 75, 76, we bought the 3,000 cuttings and, uh, and rooted them. Uh, we did not get this property prepared right. I was still, I was, I was still operating the store. And, and so we had to hire people to, you know, plow up the field. It was pretty bare. It had been, there was only a couple of rows of cherry trees left up here. The former, the slope was pretty all bare. But according to old timers, uh, years ago, it, it was a prune orchard, you know, mm -hmm. which I can attest to because for the next 10 years, I fought scrub prunes coming up around the fence line and any places in the vineyard, you know. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, the humble beginning. Uh, we lost half of the cuttings that we tried to root. So we ended up moving out here with 1,500 plants. And, and then we, we had a, the holes augered and we, we planted it the best we knew how, you know. And so, uh, and, and we didn't get, we didn't even get it all the way done until like the 
almost the 4th of July that year. Fortunately, it rained a couple of times during the summer. We stretched 600 feet of garden hose from my neighbor's well to where we could hand water these things in. Needless to say, we did it the hard way. <laughs> and that was, the learning curve was huge, but um, it survived. Mm -hmm. You know, we lost about five or so, 10%, maybe we got more, we replanted it, and then we, we put in a little 50 plants of Pinot Gris in 1980. So we planted in the spring uh, of 78, 1980, we put in 45 plants of Pinot Gris, which I had uh, gotten from Don Byard. I'm sure you know Don. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and one thing that was good, I, I joined that little Salem area uh, grape growers group, you know, that was great. No elected officials, all volunteers, no dues. No, I just meet once a month and have dinner together and share some wine and, and then uh, usually we'd have some sort of topic. I'm sure you mm -hmm. don't have to go into all of that. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so yeah, Don said, well, I've got some Pinot Gris left over. So I don't know if he gave them to me or I sold or bought them, you know. But they were rooted already. And after that, we figured out we could, we could buy rooted, self-rooted vines for 50 cents a piece. You know, and but I paid 20 cents a piece for cuttings and lost half of them, so that I, they doubled the cost of it. And then I had to dig them up. <laughs> you know, so when we planted the east block here, we we planted Pinot Gris at the at the uh, uh, suggestion of um, um, oh, I'm going to get one of these. Um, he was the vineyard manager for Irie for years and years. Uh, and now he's, he runs a, a vine tenders. It's a- Oh, Joel Myers. Joel Myers, thank you very much. And uh, <clears throat> so we got cuttings from, or rootings from him, planted the Pinot Gris, filled out the Pinot Noir, and uh, here we are, you know, down the road. Um, what were the biggest you mentioned kind of doing it the hard way and not really having a whole lot of background knowledge. So what were the biggest obstacles to, to getting the vineyard up and running, to getting the property up and running? Well, probably the fact that I didn't live here, you know, was a big issue. And I was working, so it was, you know, after work times or days I didn't have work to do or, or it could have been for um, the... Uh, The, just, you know, kind of a labor mm -hmm. shortage on the fact that I didn't have the money to go buy. The original vineyard, though, was, was a combination of my brother and my sister. I had more time than money. My sister had more, she had a little of both. She had a little money and a little time. My brother had more money than time. So we, the partnership was, was formed mm -hmm. and, and that's how we got it planted and uh, purchased and planted and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So that, that worked up until the, fa until the 90s when I decided with my second wife that I was going to, to uh, start the winery. Mm -hmm. you know. mm -hmm. so. so you mentioned meeting David Lett. I'm, I'm curious about 
what what about him inspired you to, to do it? I mean, he he, he obviously. He obviously mentioned mentioned that it could be a fun and exciting or whatever he mentioned. But why did he? How did he convince you that this was the thing to do? Well, he invited us over to to walk his vineyard with him, and that's probably the biggest item. But we also uh, went went into his little winery there, uh, which is still there, the old turkey processing plant, and and got to see in a couple of different uh, times, you know, the process. Mm -hmm from fermenting, and barrel aging, and all of that. Plus, being having a, a, a retail uh, liquor license for our little store, we, we started buying and retailing his wine there. You know, we buy a case at a time, and, and uh, I mean, or, you know, a case of each division. So that's one of the fun things I remember. We, we were buying his cases of of Pinot Noir for about $50 a case. And we marked it up about a third, about four bucks a bottle. We marked it up $1.95 or something. And, what, and we sold his Pinot in our store for just under $6 a bottle. <laughs> that, that gives you an idea of, of where I come from, huh? Uh, and you know, we sold his, uh, he had one called a spring wine. You've probably heard of that. Mm -hmm. It was a blend of several whites that he made. And, and I think his overall enthusiasm about what he was doing uh, was good. He eventually uh, hired me when I was a contractor to come over and, and try to fix up the ceiling in his old winery there. So we actually painted the ceiling and there were some holes, it was plywood, it wasn't sheetrock or anything. There were some holes up there, you know, and we filled them with, I don't know, foam or something and cut it off with a knife and filled it with putty to try to smooth it out. But, you know, we did a little bit of work for them and even after that, once I was, uh, once I started producing wine and stuff like that, uh, there was an inquiry from him about buying my fruit, you know, mm -hmm. <clears throat> which I turned him down at that point, but, you know, I didn't have that, that much. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, he was a, a, a great, great inspiration, you know, and, uh, and not afraid to share it. I think that's, and that's probably one of the more important things in the early days that we had going here, you know, uh, uh, in the Oregon wine industry, you know. When I started, when I planted here, I was, I'd be hard pressed to, to guess that there was more than 25 or 30 acres in all of the Eola Amity Hills. I mean, we know that uh, Amity was one, Don Byard was two, uh, the original planting at, not done by Castile's was done in 77. I should have planted this that year, but I, I put it off a year. And, uh, and then uh, there was Jim Feltz up here, whose son is the manager at Christum, you know, the vineyard manager. And I think he planted in 73 or 4. You, you may know more than I do. Uh, 
And I met Jim and Connie. But so, so there wasn't very many acres, you know, hardly anything around here. Now, what are we, over 3,000. I've seen a hundredfold growth in the industry. And I have to say, honestly, I, I feel, uh, as a native uh, Oregonian and stuff, I feel proud of what what the Oregon wine industry has become, you know. I'm just a little cog over here, you know, but, you know, uh, my little cog has taken, you know, more gold medals in Switzerland than anybody else in the whole place, you know. It doesn't matter what kind of money you have or how much you spent to get there, you know. Uh, the matter is what's in the bottle, and so we're very proud of that. Not many people pay much attention to that, you know, it's all about the, the critics and, mm -hmm. you know, I, I decided long ago I'll make wine for myself but not for the critics, you know. Um, but, uh, so, you know, I feel proud that you, you might know more than I do of, of, of the where we stand now, but a few years ago when they did the, the thing and we... Uh, the trickle-down effect of the Oregon wine industry here was over five billion or something like that. Pushing seven now. Pushing seven. There you go, and it's almost ready to overtake, or maybe has the Oregon nursery industry, dollar-wise, I guess. You know, so it's a great thing for Oregon having transitioned from a, a timber economy and stuff like that. So now we're we're still agricultural, but. We have a worldwide reputation, and it's growing too, you know. So that makes me feel proud to be a part of it. Although, you know, I'm I'm getting tired. <laughs> I'm getting old. <laughs> I got two great guys working for me right now. Uh, obviously, you know Robert here, and then Dowdy Williams, who grew up around the corner. I've known him for quite a few years, and uh, honestly, I can I can go away from this place and. And, and trust that it's going to continue to go. I took a month off in December and went to Arizona. But, uh, and that was kind of fun. But, you know, I, and I, I didn't have any internet down there. That, I mean, I could have gone and found it at a Starbucks or something, but I didn't care. <laughs> so a I went game. a whole month with no emails. <laughs> It's like, whoa. It's the dream. Yeah, that, that really was. Wait, really was. Go ahead. So I'm curious about sort of the, the way the vineyard developed in the first sort of decade of its life and, right. and, about, and about finding people to buy your grapes. It was haphazard care for the first couple of years. There, there was, we didn't have the trellis wire in, I don't think. We didn't have the end posts in. We planted a, we put an impost, I mean, a, a grape stake at every plant, just like Dave Lett had done, you know? I mean, we just kind of copied what he had done. And of course, we had a nine-inch auger that dug the holes for the plants, which was great. And then we put the stake in the same hole or on the edge or something like that. But over the years, some holes were deeper than others, and the post would sink or it would lean one way or the other. And so it was all... It was all pretty crazy, but you know the grape survived, and, and we got it done. And uh, what really brought it around was in I think '85 or '86 we we finally got a little tractor with a that we could use with a an air blast sprayer, you know, and and then our first 
crop was really not until 1986, that, and I sold most of the Pinot to home winemakers, and um, Chardonnay went to uh, Glen Creek Winery, pretty much. Tom Dum over there on Orchard Heights Road, and uh, that was our first sale of grapes. And then the next, the next year, I sold to I sold to him for a couple of years, and then in '88, uh, Red Hawk started buying my grapes, but he split it with Keith Orr, who had what was the name T of his Tempest. Tempest, yes. So they split my crop for about three years or something like that. And then I, I cut Keith out of the deal just because I didn't want to be transporting it up to Portland or wherever he was operating. He wasn't happy about that, but I think we patched that up along the way somehow. And, uh, and then we, uh, we started making our first wine here uh, actually, we made it at Red Hawk. Our 91 was the first vintage. <clears throat> and uh, we did 35 cases of Pinot Noir, uh, 20 cases of Pinot Gris, and about 75 or 80 cases of Chardonnay, just because we couldn't sell the Chardonnay. And, and, uh, and so, and, and I had sold three quarters of the Pinot to Red Hawk. Mm -hmm. So so we just made what was left, basically. 140 cases of my first what, production, yeah. What made you decide to start making wine? Well, Tom had made some great wine in 88. We had a couple of nice warm years there, and he he took that wine and and submitted it to the IPNC folks and, and was accepted to show it over there. And he put a little Stangland Vineyard sticker on the label, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I kind of thought, well, you know, we could just continue to sell things. But I, uh, it, it kind of proved it. it was a good, good site, you know, making great, great wine. So that's when, when we decided. Uh, oh, it wasn't until '90s I got. I got remarried, and, and uh, Kin Kinsey uh, was my second wife, and <clears throat> her dream was to get a college education. She sent her three daughters to college and whatnot, and uh, mine was to have a small winery, you know? So we, we uh, helped each other out there, you know, and we were off and, and rolling. <laughs> Well, one thing I wanted to tell you, it's kind of an interesting point, uh, you know, a reference point, you know, when, back when uh, in 75 or 4, whenever I spoke to my mother about uh, growing grapes and whatnot. Right, they bought this five and a half acres in 1971. It was divided out of 80 acres into 14 plots. All of them were over five and not many, between five and six acres each. Mm -hmm. So they made 14 lots out of it. And uh, this one had one of the best views mm -hmm. and it sold just like that. But the people were from California and they didn't, uh, they defaulted 
and she got it back and she worked with my mother in the school district. My parents were both teachers here in Salem. Uh, and uh, she, said, she says, well, uh, you, you and your husband interested in investing in a piece of view property out in West Salem? And my mother said, well, maybe, you know, let's go look. So they bought it for $6,500, five and a half acres, you know, bare land. Mm -hmm. It was about 1,200 an acre mm -hmm. there. I don't know, what's vineyard land going for these days? <laughs> if you can find it. A little it. more than that. A little bit more, yeah. So that's always kind of an interesting uh, uh, comparison, I guess, to see where we're at now. You know? I'm just amazed that the, uh, the investment has gone on just in my neighborhood, you know. This, this AVA has become a hot spot, you know. Second only to Dundee Hills. I think as far as the uh, value of the land goes and stuff like that, but also the number of producers is steadily growing and, mm -hmm. and of course there's lots of, there's lots of people, wineries in Yamhill that, mm -hmm. that own vineyards here, you mm -hmm. know. Mm -hmm. They'll never build a winery, but you know. Mm -hmm. so. Tell, tell me about making wine for the first time. Were you were you were you good at it? No, but you know I I I, <laughs> I wasn't. Uh, the uh, I don't know. I tried to make some in my kitchen one time, and and that didn't uh, pan out. But the first real effort, you, you know, uh, was uh, in nineteen eighty seven. And uh, you know, we made a few five-gallon carboys and, and so on, and it came out okay. Not memorable, but you, you know, for making wine in glass jars, you know. Uh, but uh, I got together with uh, four other friends of mine, um, and that was kind of interesting. It was a, a varied background. We were all pretty close to the same age, except for one guy. He was a little bit younger, but we were all. The baby boomers, you know, born in '47, you know, and think. So there was myself, who at that time I was a contractor, and then there was a general contractor friend of ours that went to North High. We went to South, and he, you know, uh, and he got involved in it. And then there was a, another guy that had gone to school at Willamette and got his law degree. So we had the painter and the builder and the lawyer and then we had uh, I call him the entrepreneur but he and his partner uh, uh, invented designed built and sold the baseball pitching machines the, jug, the jugs machines huh? the, the, the jugs machines the big spinning yeah yeah, no, I don't know. They had a, a hopper and it went yeah. through okay. wheels and it went shooting out, you know. It was, that was <laughs> invented in a garage in Milwaukee, Oregon, and they sold them all over the world, you know. Uh, Dick and Tommy Smith and Dick, uh, and Dick was part of that, that group. And then there was another guy that was friends of mine. And, he was an anesthesiologist, so we, we had this varied background, you know, and it was all fun. We all enjoyed good wine, and, and we got together, and we, we, we bought two pieces of equipment, and uh, 
you know, a press and a destemmer. And then Mike built a, a, a box for the um, fermentation, you know, and with a, we put a, one of the liners in it like they use the cherry growers. And that's how we did it. And we made a, a barrel of, uh, and I got two used barrels and we cleaned them good and we put, made a barrel of Pinot and a barrel of Chardonnay. For three years, we did that 88, 89, and 90. And we got a little bit better every year. We entered some in the amateur wine at the Oregon State Fair when they were doing that. And we got some sort of ribbon. We never got a, a first. We got a couple of seconds or something like that, you know. But it, 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 it kind of pointed that we were on the right track. And of course, my background is, is analytical chemistry, right? <laughs> what do you do with that, you know? <laughs> Let's analyze something, you know? <laughs> See what it made of. But, you know, it was a good background. It was a scientific background. So you, it, it, it prompted you to, to use scientific methods to try to figure out what you're doing, you know, and if you're going to change something, you want to make sure you had a, something to compare it to, of course. You know, so um, that's when I got my first little book. I don't know, I think it was called Grapes into Wine. It was a little paperback, very easy reading and stuff to go. Uh, and uh, so, you know, that's, that's kind of where we where we started and over the years while I was working and if I had weekends I, I did a little bit of, of um, uh, tasting room uh, help for Bethel Heights up there. Uh, we actually went to Astoria and did the Seafood and Wine Festival on behalf of Bethel a couple of years in a row and uh, and then uh, we um, Let's see, what else did I do there? Hmm. Oh, yeah. I, I helped a couple of years for harvest at uh, uh, Hidden Springs, which mm -hmm. is Don Byard's winery. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I also filled in when they couldn't find anybody or the, they were busy in their tasting room mm -hmm. a, few, a few times. So, you know, I got to know more Oz hands. Of, and when I wasn't busy at Bethel Heights, they gave me a jug and said, here, top these barrels, you know. So I did that, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I have all the respect in the world for the Castile family. They, they've uh, been a leader here in the Yola Hills for years, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so... Tell me about the sort of the evolution of your wine then as, as you got better at making wine and got more sort of familiar with your grapes and your grapes matured. Tell me about how your wine, your wine making wine styles changed as, as, you, as the business grew. Well, I think primarily being underfunded and, and whatnot was uh, the uh, uh, g getting some new oak into the program was really a a major focus uh, and uh, I think we bought hmm I'm trying to remember we may have not we may have bought our first new barrels in 96 maybe could have been yeah because you know for four or five years I didn't I don't think I bought any new oak I used some oak alternatives tried that out 
that was okay for inexpensive wine, you know, but it wasn't really making any uh, world-renowned stuff at that time, so. Um, I think that was the biggest thing. And then uh, learning about, you know, uh, leaf removal uh, and when to do that, when not to do that, uh, to give more sun to the canopy. And obviously, uh, I felt that it was uh, give more sun to the fruit, which helped develop the color. Because, mm -hmm. you know, I got Vadensville clone here from Dave Latin. Now, I didn't know there's 156 different clones of Pinot, you know? So I didn't know much about the clonage or anything, you know, the clonage. That's a technical term, I'm <laughs> sure. <laughs> but, um, so, yeah. Um, learning, learning as I go, I guess, was, was the thing. And, and uh, we were self-distributing, and we, we would go to the wine festivals and mm -hmm. do things like that. And uh, and then, what the '98, the '98 vintage was. Oh, that was it. <clears throat> Limiting the crop, thinning the crop, you know, uh, and keeping the keeping it down to two ton per acre. I think that was a key. Uh, component in the winemaking. And another thing that come to mind that, that really uh, uh, influenced me a lot was being invited to the, the Steamboat Conference mm -hmm. down on the Umpqua. And we went, I don't know if we went two years in a row or a year and then we went, but I, no, I think I've only been to it twice. Mm -hmm. uh, but that was a very, very interesting uh, tasting where you had 70 or 80 people, you know about it, I'm mm -hmm. sure, in the room and you're sitting at tables and, and you get all, uh, all these people and their opinions and, and you know, and, but one of the key entries was the book. The, uh, the pages, uh, everybody that brought a wine uh, filled out this, this page about the wine, when it was picked, what the tonnage was, what the clone was, what the bricks were, what the TA was, what all of these factors that go into you know, you're checking out when you're doing juice and what yeast they're using and how they're doing that. And I, I came out of there and I think the following year I made the best wine I'd ever made. You know, And one of the things I learned out of there was people were using, at that time there was a lot of use of, um, or people using RC212 yeast, you know, the Burgundian yeast and mm -hmm. stuff, and I started using that and with good results, and away we went, you know. And now there's zillions of other yeast strains out there for different purposes. But that, that was probably a, a key thing in, in my learning and upgrading what I was doing here from you know, people even, even after 20 years, you know, I, you know, people refer to me as a, as a hobby winery, you know, and I said, no, it's way beyond the hobbiness, you know, uh, really, um, it's my working 401k, right? <laughs> so, 
that was kind of the ground for that. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I'm, I'm, I skipped over a part. You mentioned, obviously, Stangeland, an interesting name. Tell, oh. tell me about the origin of the name. Sure. Stangeland, or if you would put, you know, a Nordic inflection in it, you could say Stangeland. And um, it is Norwegian. It is the, my mother's surname, my grandparents' surname. Uh, it means strong land in Nor ancient Norwegian or something like that. Mm -hmm. There's a whole <clears throat> telephone book of Stangelands, you know, in and around Klepp County, which is just south of Stavanger in Norway. And I visited over there a couple times, uh, uh, which was great. I, I stayed with relatives in 72 when I was traveling all over Europe, you know. And I always had this idea in the back of my head, if I ever made some good wine, it'd be fun to export some of that back to the old country, right? And so I did. I, I exported 300 cases in 2008, I guess it was, to the Norwegian Monopoly through a, an importer, you know? Mm -hmm. And then in 2010, I, I, I won a tender for, I think it was 504 or 506 cases. It was a small container load, and uh, that went to Norway. Uh, I actually landed there on the, on, on the um, 2000 and, uh, uh, 10, excuse me, uh, the, the wine had just come in from America, but it, it hadn't been unloaded or distributed or anything like that. But because of that first export, my, uh, I had a second cousin over there I had never met, a Stanglin too. I had, when I was there before, I'd stayed with my maternal side of the family, my, a great aunt and, and, and her niece, which would have been my mother's first cousin, you know, that never married. And, and I stayed in their house with them for about a month, you know, or five weeks. It was lovely just to get an idea of their culture and, and how they interacted with each other, you know, even though most of it was in Norwegian. But uh, my great aunt spoke English. She, she had gone to, to uh, New York or Syracuse or something in 1925 and learned English and then came back to Norway. And, <laughs> It's, a, you know, it was it was really, and they called up all these other relatives, and I'd every, a different day I'd go out and visit these other relatives and stuff. But Tor, the name of the second cousin I had never met, he sent me an email, and he says, "Hey, I have a neighbor that 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 uh, saw saw the the wine in the in the wine store and wanted to know if I was related to that wine producer from Oregon." <laughs> he says, "I'm not sure, but I think I am." <laughs> so that was a great introduction. And then when uh, we, we my former company asked me to go do some consulting for the paint industry back in in um, in Turkey, and. Uh, and they were paying for my, you know, $500 a day consulting fee and whatnot. And uh, I just took, I took my wife, final wife, third wife, uh, I, I took her with me. I said, hey, we're going to Norway for a week and then we'll go to Turkey, you know. So we did that and we stayed with Tor. He was a wonderful man. He was 79 at the time. He'd be 91 now. 
you know, 16 years older than I am. Our grandfathers were brothers. <laughs> Somewhere I have a family picture. Yeah, he. It was it was great. We we stayed with Tor, and we uh, went did some little uh, car trips around. He took us up in the mountains, you know, the the high, higher elevations. You know, the, those mountain lakes are all glaciated, just like the fjords, except they're not connected to the ocean. And we went to a place called Sirdal, S-Y-R-D-O-L, Sirdal. He says, this is where our family roots come from, this area here, and it was like, you know, going to Hopewell or Lincoln, you know, there's a few houses there. There's no businesses left or anything like that. But that was kind of an interesting thing. He says, yeah, they they came, uh, this, this dates back to 1463. <laughs> <laughs> Crazy. Yeah. So, you know, that, that was really fun to get to. And then, you know, I was like a big thing, you know, they, uh, Tor says, hey, uh, there's uh, friends that, that live on the old historic Stanglin farm, and their name is Stanglin too, and they would like you to come over for some tea or coffee or whatever. So after we were, got ourselves together a little bit, we went over to and got to visit the old Stanglin farm and visit these other Stanglins. And, uh, and there was a, uh, a journalist from the local newspaper that was there. And her name was, St she was a Stanglin too. <laughs> it was really quite humorous. But we had a wonderful little gathering and, and, and before I left, there was a, a full page in the, in the newspaper about this guy from Oregon coming, exporting wine to Norway, et cetera. <laughs> it, was, it was quite, you know, I think, well, yeah, that, that was a that was a great trip. I'd, we'd love to go back. Ruth subsequently found out that uh, some of her mom's side comes from Alsahagen, which is an island north, way north of Stavanger, but not, you know, well, Norway's 1,500 miles long, so it's quite a ways north, but not way, not far as Tromsø or anything. Anyway, so she'd like to go there. I don't know what she's going to find, but she just wants to go there, spread some of her mother's ashes, you know, or something. That's really cool. That's really cool. Yeah. There's been a lot of interesting things, uh, you know, happened to it, you know, because of here. You know, and I inherited the property, you know, so I didn't have to go out and buy it. I built the original house for $30,000, and that included, you know, Five thousand dollars for the well, and and the septic, and the excavation, and the gravel, and and getting the power ditch dug, everything. So you know, it. Uh, so I was pretty. You know, I wasn't under a big mortgage thing, and and uh, you know, in uh, in 1990, I I quit the contracting. That's when I met. Kinsey and got remarried in 91, and uh, they, uh, I went back to work for the 
industrial paint manufacturing company that I had worked for out of college. Uh, and, you know, fast forward 19 years of being gone from there, it was, it was then owned by a European outfit, AXO, A-K-Z-O, AXO Nobel. And uh, it was a conglomeration of coatings, chemical, uh, basic chemicals, salt, peroxides, stuff like that, that they, uh, there's no value added to that. They, they, and um, they were into fibers, and they were very instrumental in, back in the probably 50s, 60s, of developing the birth control pill, you know? It was part of their group. During the time, just 17 years I worked for them, they, they spun off the pharmaceuticals, they spun off the fibers, uh, and they kept the basic chemicals in the paint. <laughs> you know, the lather I was working in, and and uh, um, it was an interesting evolution, you know. But I had a good, steady job. I didn't have to get on the freeway and commute commute for an hour. At 15 minutes, I could be in. 20 minutes, I could be at, at work, you know, in, in Salem. My older brother worked there, also for 38 years. He he's the one that kept it. You kept his job, made a big. 401k, you know, <laughs> mine was pretty small by the time, by the time I left there. <laughs> but it was a good place. There was interesting people. I got to travel. I uh, I made multiple trips to England and Ireland. Um, a couple trips to Turkey. Uh, three or four trips to Chile. Uh, and I had so many miles on in 2001 or something there, I, uh, or 2000, I, I got two free round trip tickets to Australia, and and we went to the, the I don't know, fourth, fifth annual uh, cool climate symposium in Melbourne, and we stayed for three weeks, and we spent a week in Tasmania, and then we went we went to the deal, and then we traveled around southern Australia a little bit, thinking we were going to go to Adelaide, and we just decided, God, we don't have any days, you know. <laughs> so we turned around and came back through Melbourne and went up to uh, the, uh, oh, it's northwest of, of Melbourne. They grow a lot of Pinot and stuff there, too. It's a cool climate area. And then we, we, we uh, toured the Mornington Peninsula area, too, which was that was on the east side of St. Philip's Bay, and, and we, uh, we got a good idea of the, you know, we didn't get into any areas that were growing the big, big bad reds or anything like that, you know. Even Tasmania, they had, they were growing some, some uh, cab and stuff there, but that was because they didn't know what else to do. That's what everybody else was growing on other parts. But then they, they had a pioneer that came in and planted Pinot Noir and Pinot Gris, and things took off for them down there. Um, very interesting. Uh, I, I think being a part of a, of a wine community uh, in a different part of the world makes uh, interesting conversation, you know, with the people that you meet along the way. Um, mm -hmm. Probably one of the more, more uh, what do I want to say? I don't want to use the word satisfying, but uh, 
things that has happened to me is to have uh, <clears throat> international interns come here. And I've only had three of them. Uh, one, and they're all female, which was kind of interesting. Uh, none of them were married or anything. They were all around 25 to 27 years old. But, um, and there again, it was an interesting, uh, I met them through my work, right? Um, so the first one was Elizabeth um, Galloway, and she was from Martinboro, uh, New Zealand, the south end of the North Island. And she, <laughs> it was similar. She had a degree in chemical process engineering from Wellington, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and her father was a big, big time manager for our paint company in the Asian. I mean, he was, he was in charge of, of the uh, um, plants uh, in, uh, you know, Singapore. There was two or three of them built in China. There was uh, maybe in Vietnam, too. I'm not, not too sure. But he had visited uh, Salem on one of his trips being, you know, kind of a, a big-time guy, nice fellow. And uh, I gave him a bottle of my Pinot, you know, which he emailed me back a month or so later and said, I really like that, you know. And then he emailed me, he says, hey, I have a daughter that wants to come and do a northern vintage. But she's, she's talked to some other winery here or something. And I says, well, have her get a hold of me, you know. We got, we'd love to have her, you know. Mm -hmm. So she came in 2005. and. She lived in, we have like a bed and breakfast in the downstairs of our house there. So she lived down there and helped us make wine. And, and in 2006, I was involved with my, I'd been divorced and I was involved with, with Ruth. And, and uh, I, uh, she paid her own way over the first time. And then we gave her some money and let her use the car whenever she wanted to and whatnot. And she was just a delight, you know. And, uh, so um, she came back in 06, which was the year we got our third, well, it was an, it was an 06 wine, a double framed up there. Mm -hmm. uh, that was uh, done in 08, mm -hmm. obviously there. And mm -hmm. So her fingerprints are on that one. Mm -hmm. uh, but. Um, we uh, had a good time, and, and, and I paid her way over in 06, and she stayed, and then she, she took off, and she went, she stayed for three months, you know, and, and then she had to get out of the country because of her visa thing, right? And they don't allow you to go to Mexico or Canada. You gotta, <laughs> gotta go to a different continent, you know? And so she had grandparents in the Shetland Islands. Right. And so she went to Shetland Islands for Christmas for a month, and she came back and stayed with us for, I don't know, several weeks. And then we drove her down to San Francisco where she was going to hang out for a, a week or so and then fly back to New Zealand. And then in, also in 2006, we had an, another young woman, didn't know a lot about wine. Um, but was willing to learn, and, and she worked with, with Elizabeth. Her name was uh, 
Belin uh, Alkan, I think like that, and she's Turkish, and she's born and raised in Istanbul, and uh, we still have contact with her. We've have vi we've visited her in 2010 when we were over in mm -hmm. in uh, Norway and stuff, and uh, in Turkey, and. Uh, so that's, that's been, I guess, rewarding was the thing, you know, part of the business. It's not monetary, it's, it's the people, you mm -hmm. know. And, uh, and then uh, at our second trip to, uh, third trip, I guess, to Switzerland for the gold medal ceremony, uh, we met, um, Madeleine Mercier and her mom and dad are, are wine producers in in Valais and in, in the city of of uh, Sierre, which is where they hold that competition. And um, <clears throat> I had a I was wine tasting with a, a fellow, a quite well known viticulturist uh, from that area, and worldwide too. He'd worked for the Hess Group for, you know, he'd planted, helped design and planted vineyards in South Africa and Argentina and kind of all over the world. Wonderful person, him and his wife, you know. And uh, so he took his kind of wine tasting, you know. And every, there's the streets of, of Sierra are lined with big tents, you know. And he, they're so big, they're, they can hold four wineries, right? So one on all four sides. And every side had, a, had the name of the winery, the producer, and also had uh, the name of uh, the village that they were from and when they were founded, you know. Very regimented, you know, like the Swiss do. And uh, so we started one end, it was on a Saturday and Sunday, and we started one end, Ruth, just Ruth and I, and we were only tasting white wines and we were moving down the street and they, of course the Swiss, meaning they organize things. If the, if, the, if the town that the producer came from was in the west end of the valley, they were at the west end of the street, right? And as you worked your way down, you worked your way along the, the part of the valley till you got clear to, you know, where the brig or wherever the road goes to the Matterhorn, right? You're pretty close to that area. And uh, so, we got down there and Ruth says, I'm done. <laughs> I'm going back to ho the, the hotel. And they put us up in a 36-room chateau that was right on the edge of the city. And, and it was the uh, Chateau Mercier. As it turned out, it was started by the great-grandfather of the couple that had the winery there and their daughter, Madeline. Madeline had been to all the school and everything. She was a little bit older. She was maybe like 28 when she came here. I gave her my card and I says, hey, and she spoke English because she, she had spent her senior year in, in America, you know, exchange program. And uh, I said, here's my card. If you want to come and do a vintage in Oregon, you know, we got a place for you to stay and everything else. So she came. She was wonderful. She was so well organized. She made me, made my bookkeeping look like crap. You know, <laughs> oops. You don't have to edit that one. Um, so she was just, she was a delight, and uh, and 
And unfortunately for her, uh, it was 2010, which was one of our toughest vintages ever. It rained, it had mildew, it, it, you know. I, I don't think I even picked my Chardonnay then that year. And, uh, and we picked through the Pinot that didn't have any damage to it. But she made some nice wine out of it. Uh, you know. And then we've, we've been back and we visited her in 2017 when we took a Viking River boat from Avignon to Lyon, rented a car, drove through Chamonix and over the mountain and you're right in, in Valais there, you know. And so we went and stayed there. We actually stayed with some other people up on the hill that we'd met when they were, she was a journalist and he was a, he was a uh, economics professor, you know. Uh, so we have all these friends there in the in the Valley of Valais, which is kind of interesting. And and so we went and saw them in 2017. And and uh, then uh, by this time, Madeline had gotten married, and she had twin girls. But her husband, for some reason, they had a falling out very early on. Who knows why? But anyway, uh, so we got to see her three-and-a-half-year-old twin girls. They'd be going on eight now. Mm -hmm. I'd love to see them again. To hear these young, uh, cute little girls babble in French was heartwarming, to say the least, you know. So I think those kinds of things are really, they sit my best memories of uh, some of the things that are going on. We. We had, uh, we got invited to uh, a special dinner before the, uh, bef the judging had already been done, but these, these were uh, journalists and stuff, you know, one was Chinese, one was Russian, one was German, one, you know, they were from all over the place. And they were staying at, at the same chateau. They put us up in this chateau and uh, we got to go to this dinner because, I don't know, we came from the furthest away, I guess, I don't know. And we knew the, uh, by this time we knew the general, director general of the, of the uh, Venea organization and she invited us because we'd come into town a couple days early. And uh, so we, we went to this little village just outside of Sierra and had this great, dinner and during the part of the thing we went outside and there was a little train station right next to that and the guys had the, the Alphorn there right <laughs> so, oh you want to try it they say you know <laughs> of course I tried it and it was like whew, you know but my wife was able to make it make a noise out of it so she's pretty proud of that yeah and then, you know, every time we've been on about six of those Viking trips, the four river boats and two ocean, ocean trips, the rivers are by far the best. Uh, and we took a case of wine with us. You know, Vikings really dealt about their alcohol policy. They're not trying to rape you over the coals like the big cruise ships do, you know. And you can buy wine along the trip and take it in. You can open it up at your dinner. They don't care because mm -hmm. <laughs> they provide a little bit of wine or, or beer with their fruit. And, and uh, they say, well, uh, you know, if you drink your own, you're not going to drink us. And oh, that's okay. You know, but we would share it with people we'd meet on the boat. And, mm -hmm. so, and sometimes we'd share it with people we met on the, 
on the shore too, you know. Bringing a bottle of Pinot Noir to the to uh, Blay, which is on the what the right bank, you know, from Bordeaux there, you know. These guys in the wine shop were just thrilled as heck to try some wine from <laughs> from Oregon, you know. Yeah. Go ahead. Shoot me a question. Maybe I, I I'm curious about selling your wine, especially especially in the early days. Uh, where, where did you find the most success selling wine? Well, I tried to get it, I tried to get it in our local Roth stores here in the Mid Valley, you know, but it was only, only about two of them, two to maybe three of them. We, we sold it, um, and we opened the tasting room, uh, not in the really, really beginning, because there wasn't much to sell, but we opened the tasting room here on weekends mm -hmm. stuff like that. Mm -hmm. uh, I, it's hard for me to remember when the first time we we actually had some distribution. Mm -hmm. It's in the 90s there, so mm -hmm. now I've got about five distributors, most on the East Coast, Miami, Virginia, D.C., um, uh, New York and New Jersey and Montreal. That's an interesting one. That Montreal's been a, a, a good source, but it hasn't ordered anything for because of the COVID for a couple of years. They they finally broke loose with an order uh, in December, and I ca called them up because I'm supposed to get paid 30 days after it hits their warehouse, right? Hasn't hit their warehouse yet. Guess why? You know, we got a trucking. Trucker strike in Canada. I'm hoping my wine is safe, though. That's the hard part. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there was a guy I sold a little wine to. He came in here. He was checking out all the big boys because they got more notoriety through their advertising, you know. But they bought, I don't know, 30 or so cases of it and uh, went to a wine club in Australia. There's another one that went to a wine club in Japan. In fact, we're in the process now of providing wine for a, another lady that's going to open up a um, Japanese um, wine shop in, in there. And, uh, and that was good, you know. I, and, you know, I sell to Canada, and I've obviously sold to Norway. It's a, it doesn't. Uh, some of these people around here, they're, I don't know, they just seem to be, oh, we don't need to do that, we don't need to do that. And maybe they don't, you know. But I think it's kind of nice to get it out there. I guess that's what what uh, turns my crank, you know. It's, it's, uh, you know, if I make good wine and share it with the rest of the world, mm -hmm. if, <laughs> for whatever, however long it lasts, you know. Tell me about, you mentioned, you mentioned obviously the neighborhood and how much it's changed since, since you got here. Tell me about um, the growth of the Olamity Hills and, and sort of what you've seen as, as the area has matured. Well, um, lots of big players coming in, you know, big money from back east, who knows. France, Australia, uh, Argentina, you know, um, and then a lot of 
money from around the United States that people, you know, it seems to me they're more they're more just interested in the investment part of of owning owning it, you know, uh, and and they're running it as a you know as a real business. Not that I, not that this isn't a real business. It's just a small business, you know. Mm -hmm. Never really wanted to get get it make it large, you know. I think you lose your your feeling for what you're doing when and it just becomes you know a job or you know another I don't know how to describe that but um, that's why you know I don't really we don't make I think one year we made 2800 cases but typically it's between 2000 and 2500 cases here and uh, that seems to be a doable for the size of building, you know, it is. We've we've gone uh, and added on a storage room and bathrooms, and outside we have undercover but not heated. And then I've got, you know, some some tanks out back, which you know. So everything is is kind of coming a little steps when I could afford it, really. You know, I mean, I didn't I didn't go out and borrow bunch of money and say, oh, this is what, well, we've got to have a new press, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Bought a press for $5,000 in 1992 and I'm still using it, you know. <laughs> it's a German press. It's very simple. If the, there is no electronics, so there's nothing to go, I know people who bought the ones with, oh yeah, you program it to do this and press your wine so much and so much pressure. And if the electronics go out, you're dead. And then you try to get somebody to fix it, and oh, well, they're in California, or they're in Washington, or, you know, it's, it's, it's awkward. Yeah, it'd be nice to have something a little bit more modern. <laughs> but in a way, it's kind of a, a tool that you use, you know, once a year for a month, and then you let it sit the rest of the year. But it's a, it's a pneumatic horizontal pneumatic press, uh, a Wilms 500 liter, you know. Um, so, you know, things, and then the tanks, that was a big investment. That was probably $11,000. I did it over some time. And uh, my brother has a fabrication plant out in east of Salem, and he had a, um, a designer on the side, so I worked with him, and we designed our own tanks. And basically, we stretched out a 500-gallon tank and a 1,000-gallon tank, so they're like 630 and 1,120 or something like that. So we stretched them a little bit to still have to get the, take the legs off and put them in a high-cube container to get them here. And we had them built in China at about mm, half the cost that you could get them built here. And this was in 2010 or 11, something like that, 10 years ago. Um, Thick stainless steel, not not like the <clears throat> Italian mm -hmm. little wine tanks that are out there that you, know, you look at them sideways and boom, you got a dent, you know. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I I'm, I'm actually ready to kind of retire, and my, we we've tried buying. A, we had a couple of little houses and retirement parks down in Arizona. We did that for about three years. My wife spent more time than I did there, and I was kind of back and forth. 
but that was when I had different people working for me too. Mm -hmm. And then of course when COVID came along and everything changed and we were, everybody was, a, we were scared, you know, being our, you know, our age group and our susceptibility, et cetera. We didn't know really what to do other than to hunker down and, and we figured, you know, we got good water. We got excellent water on this property. We got our house, uh, <clears throat> you know, and um, so, uh, we figured, well, if we have to, you know, hunker down here, this is a good good place as any to do it, you know. Neighbors are ways away. We're not interacting with people, mm -hmm. you know. If they try to invade us, we we got machine gun mount, mounts, you know, on the deck. And <laughs> Fort Stigland. You, you, I think you have to have a sense of humor, too, you know. I mean, if, if you don't have a sense of humor, what... What's life anyway, you know? It's true. So, um, but then we sold both those houses and they were in retirement parks. We didn't own the property, you know, we owned the, the building, the little, one was a double wide, you know, and the other, and so we sold those. And anyway, we actually went back in December and we rented one in a park that we used to own in. And we still knew a lot of the people, you know, that lived there full time or, or their, they're full-time in the winter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They're coming from, a lot of them from Minnesota. <laughs> Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, uh, Ontario, a ton of Ontario and Quebec. And then you get a smattering from, you know, South Dakota, North Dakota, you know, um, the Prairie Provinces, and a few from British Columbia. There. That was kind of fun. Unfortunately, the weather wasn't that great in December. But we got away from the place for a while. We had our dog with us, and you know, we got to go visit people that we had met down there over the, the years and stuff. And that was that was a good thing. So then, what comes next? Well, you know, we're kind of sitting back, going, you know, if we sold this place, even if it was for two million or a million and a half or whatever, you know, what would we do? You know, we'd have to go find another place to live. Now, I've lived here 75 years, and there's not much better than this. I mean, sure, if your house was 5,000 square feet, and, you know, you had an indoor swimming pool or whatever. But, you know, I mean, we, don't, we just don't want to go spend $500,000 in a subdivision with a neighbor 12 feet away, you know. Mm -hmm. And we'd also like to have an area for the dog. The dog doesn't. When he's up here, he's he's not on the leash, you know, and he roams my neighbor's field. I take care of my neighbor's field. He's quite elderly, and and uh, I use part of his land back here that for store our fermenters and our farming equipment and the old truck and that kind of mm -hmm. thing. So, so for now we're gonna we, we've been fixing up the house and trying to do that, and of course it's just it's. It's almost overwhelming because we brought everything back from from Arizona, you know. So now the bed and breakfast is a storage area, you know. And we used to have a little bedroom down there, but we took we sold the bed and took that out, and we, we got some free uh, wine racks from uh, somewhere. Dowdy found them somewhere, and I just had a carpenter friend of mine mount them on the wall, 
we built platform and shelves and we got room for about 600 wine bottles in there you know we're gonna make that into our little uh, wine um, uh, cellar cellar thing for for our, our uh, library wines we're gonna our library is back in this corner we're gonna take all of that out and move it down there It'll be a little bit better temperature control although it's pretty good here you know um, and then, I don't know, try to take a few more trips if we can. We were going to go in August, or, or this month, into the month, uh, into next month, we were going to go to to Europe on another um, Viking River boat. And then we were going to get off and go see this little town where Ruth's great-grandfather was born in Ger Germany. And, uh, I mean, real close to the Swiss border, so it wouldn't have been short drive from mm -hmm. from Basel and then we were going to rent the car and then go around to Valais and see all of our friends in Valais and stay for three four days and then come home but we canceled it because it got real complicated with the, the surge going on and everything and and we just think, oh, we could go, but you know, how much fun is it to get up in the morning and spit in a cup so they can check you? And and if we would have got off in Basel and ha we had to wait a day before we can go into Germany, and then we got to get a test. That, you know, it just seemed like just too many things to make it not a real vacation. You know, having to worry about all of that. So. But we still like to travel as long as we still can. I got two new knees in 2020. I got both my knees replaced at three months apart. My wife had a hip replacement, so we're trying to get our old bodies in shape that we can do a little walking and whatnot. And uh, you know, hope to hope to go on for a while. And and I don't know. I'd love to find someone to uh, what ideally for me you know I think would be to find somebody to invest in uh, or buy the the winery operation I could lease them the building I could still live here and uh, not have to you know worry about the day-to-day -day operation of the mm -hmm. of the wine business and mm -hmm. stuff like that mm -hmm. that's sort of a plan mm -hmm. Who knows how that's going to change, however. <laughs> so. so obviously, we've kind of talked about some of the changes you've seen in, in the industry and in general, and, and obviously specifically locally. I, I'm curious, um, as you look ahead for Oregon wine, whether it just be in the Olamity Hills or, or the industry in general, what, what do you see coming next for the industry? What, what does the future of Oregon wine look like to you? I think it's property, uh, you know, obviously people die, their property gets sold, whether it's their, their relatives or whatever. And as property changes hands, I think we'll, we'll, we'll con continue to see uh, vineyards uh, planted and expanded here. I don't know how much, it's kind of like predicting the weather, you know. Uh, but that's kind of what what I see happening, you know. Uh, it, um, you know, obviously there's uh, people that specialize in 
establishing vineyards and getting them up in production and selling them off to the the French or whoever, you know. Um, I I suppose that that will continue to happen, you know. I don't. I mean, even people like what, like Don Heggie, you know, he's a great guy. Mm -hmm. He uh, he sold out here. I can't remember who bought his place. Do you? I, I remember. I can't remember their names. But yeah. yeah. Were they American? Yes, I yeah, believe. Okay. I believe so. Yeah. But God, he wasn't in it as long as I've been in it. <laughs> Started a little later. Yeah. Yeah. He did. It was, older too like I am now <laughs> so um, you know part of part of having having this little tasting room is I, I and, and I'm here if I'm here on the property and not not running the tasting counter I love to come down and chit chat with the with the customers you know it always intrigues me you know how'd you find us or how'd you what what made you stop here when you got you know you can give all the names all, if you all want. The, yeah, yeah. All, all of these neighboring people, you know, that are you know, bigger investments and larger productions and whatnot. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. And that's yeah, kind of fun. And it's kind of interesting, you know, to find, you know, the people from, from different states, obviously. And it's always interesting. I mean, I had a woman from Mongolia here, by God, you know. <laughs> that's not real common. She, it turns out she was with a girlfriend, and she she ended up. I think she attended Willamette, so she had some connections here, you know. But still, she's back and lives in Mongolia and came over to visit, you know. Um, people from all over the place, um, which is which is fun. I like to, I like to talk to people, and you know, for me and even I, my wife, I think it's true that you know when we travel. Uh, it's the people you meet along the trail that make the memories of your trip for us. Anyway, oh, wait, yeah, sure. Well, that was a crazy taxi ride from Clusion of Hoka to <laughs> we were in Romania one time. You know. But uh, and and so in in a way, you know, walking down here and and meeting people from all over the the country and, and parts of the world, it's kind of like traveling without going anywhere because you're meeting interesting people and they come for a reason and, you know, some of them are hell-bent on only tasting a wine that got a 90 points or above, you know, and, uh, but, um, but I think that's one of the, another rewarding thing, mm -hmm. you know, to, to visit with people and stuff. And I'm much more uh, I don't know if I want to use the word friendly, but uh, you know, I more than my wife. She likes her privacy a little bit more than, and not that I don't, but uh, more social. I am more social. Well, part of that is because I ran a grocery store, a little country grocery store, for five and a half years. You know, and you know, I was pumping gas or selling bedding plants or you know, cutting cold cuts and selling cigarettes, of course, and <laughs> beer, wine, whatever. But, you know, you got to meet all the people in the neighborhood, you know. It was a great opportunity to meet people. And 
having been in a, you know in a in a scientific discipline you know of analytical chemistry you know I mean I you know that was a, a difference for me you know and my partner he he came from a family of of uh, fast food restaurants <laughs> so it was a good combination his his degree was in in a business degree out of the University of Oregon and I had a science degree at Oregon State, you know, so, you know, we, we had fun there and we met a lot of people and it was, it was a good experience and, and we did it, we figured it was going to be a five-year plan, we, we got it sold after about five and a half years, but we both moved on. You just kept meeting more people. Yeah, well, you know, it, it, we sold it in 78 by by 81 or three years later or something we had got it cashed out on our on our little grocery store and sold it on a contractor old thing so we we got cashed out and and i had thirty thousand dollars to build the first house out here i went to my you know and and ten thousand of it was you couldn't see it because it was septic well gravel whatever so built a house for twenty thousand you know, in 1982, that I don't know you were alive then, but there were there were uh, that was a big recession, mm -hmm. where and, and inflation and and I mean you can you couldn't get a mortgage for 15 percent. You know, it was crazy. My buddy and I borrowed thirty thousand from my parents to fix up a house in Dallas, Oregon, you know, because we couldn't, even with our two incomes, we couldn't, uh, we couldn't qualify for uh, a loan and we were, it wasn't owner occupied until finally we couldn't sell it for a little, for a year or so, my, my partner moved in, or we, we didn't want to rent it, let's put it that way. We rented it for a while, but I don't know, they were raising rabbits in the upstairs room or something, it was just nuts. Uh, but. Uh, that allowed me to, to, to get a house out here and, and uh, uh, you know, it wasn't until I was living out here where I could take care of the grapes. Mm -hmm. Speaking of which, I remember the second year uh, after we'd planted, that had been 78, 79, I was out here in the spring when the grass and the weeds were growing. We were weeding around the, the grape plants. Uh, with nothing more than a a putty knife that I'd had in my toolbox or something, you know. <laughs> a lot of weird little uh, <laughs> memories of doing stuff the hard way. Humble beginnings. Yeah, I'd say so, you know. I mean, gee, I don't know what it costs now for somebody to go in and establish a gra an acre of grapes, but it didn't cheap, I know that. Yeah. And I replanted my whole vineyard in 15, 16, 17 um, because of Phloxera. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't know how we got it, but you know, I, I didn't. I didn't have a lot. I wasn't. I didn't have a vineyard management company. I didn't have people bringing equipment in that could be contaminated or anything else. And so it ended up here. We got it. I figured it was kind of like death and taxes. It's going to get you someday, and it did. And uh, you know, I took it a, an acre at a time. And when the harvest was over, I cut down the old plants right off at the ground and planted new ones. Uh, 
in between, you know, and we went from, uh, we increased the density. We were six foot apart, that's what David Lett did, uh, the plants, and we went down to four and a half feet. And so we had 25% more, more uh, vines out there now than we, we had in the very, in the beginning. For you, Larry. Uh, oh, so okay. Anything else we wanted to talk about? Anything else? I didn't, any questions I didn't ask that I should have? Um, no, I don't, I don't think so. You know, I mean, uh, I pretty much get along with all of my neighbors and stuff <laughs> around here, you know. I, uh, it's, uh, we still take some of our white grapes to, to one of the neighbors, whoever gives us the best deal, really, and is closest to have them squeezed for the Chardonnay and the Pinot Gris. Just because our press is so small, it just takes a long time. It's almost easier to pay somebody to put it in their big automatic press and then bring the tank and on our truck and have it and bring it back and pump it into our fermentation mm -hmm. tanks and stuff like that. So that's good. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time oh, sharing absolutely. your stories with us today, and uh, <laughs> we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. All right. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.